resources within, some powers of heart, factors of mind, they're called the factors of enlightenment, lying latent within each one of us. And this is what I'd like to talk about tonight, these seven factors of enlightenment. What these seven factors do, what these resources within do, is they illuminate the true nature of the heart. They illuminate the true nature of the mind. They lighten the heart by coming in contact with these resources that once again are inside, aren't anything to get outside from anybody, are not anything that we have to reach outside of ourselves to grab onto. They are inside in this moment. And what they do is they bring us into contact with Buddha nature. They bring us into contact with the natural radiance and peace inside. This peace, this radiance that is underneath the stories, underneath the descriptions of ourselves, which lies underneath assumptions about how things are. Buddha nature, which is buried and lost under concepts, lost in thoughts about how things are. And through coming in contact with these seven factors of enlightenment, we come into contact with that which is. As we begin to drop down into the actuality of experience, rather than skimming on the surface, as we allow ourselves to be drawn inward and to connect with what is, we begin to discover the potential for the heart to free itself. As we begin to and continue to cultivate the seeds of awakening and encourage the flowering of these seeds. We also come face to face with resistance, with restlessness, and with despair. We become perhaps more aware of that which has always been burdening the heart, that which has always been weighing us down. Perhaps the busyness of our lives has not allowed us to see, has not allowed us to fully feel the heaviness. And we become more aware of a lack of freedom. We become more aware of that which is binding us, keeping us in bondage. And we see that we've been imprisoned without even fully being conscious of it, imprisoned without even fully knowing it. And without perspective, we may think that this restlessness, this despair, this resistance is how things are, that we're coming into contact with something ultimate that we haven't seen before.
oftentimes we come to practice out of some sense of disappointment, some sense of uneasiness, some sense of incompleteness, out of an awareness that things aren't quite as they seem to be, not quite as we've been told they are, not quite as we've believed them to be. We may not even be so conscious of this when we begin practice. We may just feel the pull. We may just feel the yearning. It may not even be so clearly identified. And as practice coaxes us open, we also open more fully to the despair. As we open more fully, we may have the illusion that practice should always be loving and always be peaceful. And when it's not, when we experience despair, restlessness, agitation, we may doubt ourselves. We may perhaps think that we're practicing incorrectly, we're going in the wrong direction, that something's wrong. And there may be a sense of shame or guilt because of the lack of peacefulness, the lack of lovingness. Oftentimes in this culture, suffering equals bad and happiness equals good. And there's a sense that when there is suffering, there's something wrong with us. There's something bad happening. And that when we're happy, there's something good. And so we may get stuck in this idea of shame. When actually, for many of us, transformation and despair go together. As we open and connect deeply with actual experience, we may meet an essential despair. There are, of course, many reasons, many, many reasons in this world for despair. But essential despair or existential despair is beyond reason, (coughs) is beyond sense. Perhaps there's fear that the heart is hollow, that when we look inside we'll find nothing there, that there'll be just a void, and we'll find that indeed there really truly is no meaning in life. We're afraid we'll get lost if we stay inside. We're afraid we'll get lost if we look deeply and closely. And we begin to be tossed around by doubt, by confusion, by fear. Meditation invites us into this cave of hollowness. It invites us to explore the hollow heart, the seeming void within. And as we open more and more, we make peace with it. A strength, an enormous strength comes into our lives. We discover invaluable strength and fullness within. We become less bound by circumstance, and we begin to understand despair to be a phase rather than a reality, that indeed it is not the way things are. Let me read you a poem by Rilke. Be ahead of all parting, 
as though it already were behind you like the winter that has just gone by. For among these winters there is one so endlessly winter that only by wintering through it will your heart survive. So meditation brings about a regeneration of the heart. It brings about a release of the heart from whatever has been weighing it down. These seven factors of enlightenment are resources that come to fruition as we become more and more in contact with them. And there are three arousing factors, there are three calming factors, and then there's mindfulness, which balances all of them. The three arousing factors are investigation, energy, and joy. And the three calming factors are tranquility, or calmness, concentration, and equanimity. And then there's mindfulness. And as I'm speaking, as I talk about each one of these factors, not to relate to them as something outside, as something that you don't have, but rather see if they can be touched, as each one is spoken about. See if the seed can be touched inside. Not as something that you don't already know about, and this is just a reminder an echo of your own heart. So the first one being mindfulness. Mindfulness is what balances all of the factors. Mindfulness encourages all of the factors to bloom. Mindfulness is the capacity to notice, to know, to be awake. It's attending to our experience from moment to moment, right now, Mindfulness can only be happening right now. So right now, what is happening in the body? Right now, what is the state of mind? What are the reactions? Right now, what are the thoughts? What are the emotions? It's getting close to what is actually happening, not to what we think is happening, and not to what should be happening, but to what is actually happening right now, right here. Mindfulness is being present and connecting with our experience. Because the only way we can understand our lives, the only way we can see the meaning in our lives, is by getting close to our experience. If we're holding everything at arm's length, if we're we're looking from afar, understanding is quite superficial. But by being present, by being here, by being awake, Out of this presentness, understanding does arise because we're close enough to our life to actually see what's happening. It's not just an idea. It's not just our imagination. It's our life, and we know it. Mindfulness is not pushing away. It's not holding on, and it's not identifying with whatever it is that arises. So it's rejecting nothing, it's clinging or dwelling in nothing, and it's not saying, I am this or that, whatever it is that arises. 
It's rather seeing energies as energies arising and passing away. In mindfulness, there's no judgment. It's totally unbiased. It's without prejudice. In this moment, there is thought, perhaps. There is emotion. There is sensation. Perhaps there's sound. There's smell. There's a sight. There's a taste. Simply to know. One can't plan to be mindful. One can't decide to be mindful. Because that's planning. And one can't regret not having been mindful. Because that's gone. It's over. One can just know that regret is happening in this moment. In no other moment, regret is happening. And if we're mindful of regret, if we're mindful of planning, then the planning doesn't get locked in. The regret doesn't get locked in. It's set free. It's allowed to be. It's allowed to release itself. Each moment of mindfulness, each moment of not pushing away, of not clinging, and of not identifying, deconditions the mind. Conditioning arises, and there's nothing we can do about the arising. Nothing we can do about the arising. Being mindful, being wakeful to anything that's happening, anything that's happening, without differentiating, without discriminating, but being awake to everything that's happening is a moment of freedom. Each time, it's a moment of freedom. Sometimes we think, is it worth it? I haven't been awake anyhow for the last so many minutes or so many hours or so many moments. So is it worth it that, I'm, that I be awake right now? And it is. It is. It is a moment of freedom. And we can always catch up with it. We can always decondition the mind. The next of these factors is investigation, one of the arousing factors. And investigation has to do with questioning, with very gently probing and looking and seeing. Um, It's looking at our experience, probing at our experience with a silent mind, with a quiet mind. It's stopping and saying, what is this? Who am I? What is this? Without assumptions about what we may find. This factor is very strong in children. You may have noticed. (laughs) I was at a museum some time ago, and it was a National Geographic's exhibit. And they were quite interesting pictures, sometimes quite gory, but somewhat interesting pictures. And there was also a step, just like this one, in this museum. And there was a little two-year-old that I noticed on this step playing on it, and playing on it, and playing on it, and playing on it. It was just a phenomena how much she found to explore in just a step. She got so excited about it that after about an hour, her father had to drag her out of there screaming. (laughs) She got really attached to the step. You know, and I looked at it, and it was just a step. It's that kind of innocence and Uh, freshness that we want to bring to our experience of not knowing, of not saying it's just a S-T-E-P and so I don't care. I already know what that is. It's rather looking in a very open and, and fresh way without assumptions about what we might find. And in this way of looking, we discover that which we haven't seen. 
So it's very much acknowledging that we don't know. Instead of coming to our experience saying, I know all about it already, because of the past, because of memory, instead, it's letting go of that, and it's coming to our experience as it is, right here, right now, open to whatever may be seen. Sometimes in relationship, we can see that we have certain ideas about who people are. We have such strong ideas about who, who I am. We also have ideas about who other people are. And sometimes, particularly when we think we know the people very well, when we've been with them a long time or it's a close relationship, we put a little box around the person and we say, I know you. Let me read it and, um, something about this by someone named Shmuel Goldman, who wrote this at the age of 92. I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she is mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That is how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball. Rubbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in. Make a little hole. It goes flat. <laughs> when you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. <laughs> All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. <laughs> See, this is the Dharma being quite universal. <laughs> As we're more willing to look more deeply, rather than simply blindly reacting to our experience, we see that there is freedom from simply being overwhelmed by that which appears to be fearful, by the fearful appearance of things. We see that we can be free from being blinded by the glamorous or attractive appearance of things. And we see that there can be freedom from delusion by the seemingly insignificant appearance of things. We have within us the capacity to reflect, the capacity to observe, the capacity to investigate. We can observe anger, jealousy, confusion. When we're very confused, very upset, we can hate it and reject it. With steadfastness, with patience, with constancy, with acceptance, we can see it as the temporary condition that it is as arising and passing away. And we can be free from identifying with it. In freedom from identity with it, we experience our true nature. 
The next factor is that of energy, which is wakefulness or alertness or clarity. Mindfulness and investigation together allow for the release of energy. It's not something we have to make happen. They allow for the release of energy. Really what it is, is a dropping back into the vast energetic system within. It's dropping back into the unknown energy that we just haven't come in contact with. And this is what mindfulness investigation lead us to. Bringing effort or energy into the practice brings more energy. And the more we open, the more we drop into the flow. Effort is no way an attempt, a futile attempt to change our experience, but rather it's an attempt to see our experience as it is, directly, openly, and clearly. (coughs) Effort has nothing to do with trying to imitate anyone else, to try and become anyone else. It has to do with being inside of our own experience. This is sometimes a sometimes subtle or sometimes more obvious theme that runs through one's retreat, where one sees the jumping out of oneself trying to become the perfect yogi, trying to become the perfect meditator. And so imitating perhaps how somebody is walking, noticing someone looks a bit more mindful than you when you're eating. And so that's the way that one is mindful. That's the correct way to be mindful. When who knows, their mind could be absolutely, totally in another place. Mindfulness is about being in one's own experience, whatever that experience is. It's authenticity. Being sensitive to inner and to outer conditions is a skillful way to work with effort. To look at one's relationship to effort is essential in the practice. To look at what's happening in the body, in the mind, what the health is like, what the physical situation is like. And to look at our relationship, to look at whether we measure effort out with an eyedropper, just like that. Or whether we're walking around in constant tension all the time from trying to become somebody, from trying to become something. And we can let go. We can simply be right here and now. It is possible. The next of these factors is joy. And sometimes there can be quite a relief that this is one of the factors. And that it is indispensable. It's not that one can decide that joy is okay or not. It's very much a part of our path. It's inside. Sometimes we can make the mistake that the spiritual life is self-punitive. That's what it has to do with. And actually, it's exactly the opposite of that. It's seeing, suffering, and letting go. Sometimes we have to pick things up before we can see how heavy they are. And then we can just let them go. When we let go, there's lightness, there's joy, and there's a sense of relief and of ease. 
Joy doesn't have to do with just the pleasure of having a good time, of trying to accumulate pleasurable experiences. It has to do with opening up to a life. Let me read you something by Maharaj Nisargadatta. The bliss is in the full awareness of both pleasure and pain, not shrinking or in any way turning away. All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pleasure, acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage, and endurance. These open deep and perennial sources of real happiness, true bliss. Living in ideas, living in concepts about how life is, is boring. It's tiring. It's exhausting. Stepping out of concepts makes life continually interesting. And there's a sense of joy from this interest. To know just the way it is, is to know joy. So we can nurture contentment, we can nurture ease, we can nurture lightness. It has nothing to do with being grim or trying to be a certain way. It has nothing to do with trying to fit any particular model of how I should be or what joy is even. It's discovering for ourselves what joy is. The way it's expressed is different for each one of us. And to honor the differences, it's the knowing that counts. The three calming factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. And to begin with calm, an image of the calm mind is the image of a still body of water that's unagitated. The water is just lying quite still. This is brought about by a sense of perspective, a sense of perspective around loss and gain, a sense of perspective around praise and blame, and what these things really mean if they're really so important. A few Sundays ago, the center that I'm involved in in Cambridge, someone wrote an article about it in a well-known paper, the Boston Globe, came out two Sundays ago. And I opened it up, and there was a picture of the other person that teaches at the center with me and me in um, glowing color in the Boston Globe. It was kind of transcendent. The Buddha was over us, and there was a <laughs> it was kind of hokey. And there was a light that was going right out, out of the page. <laughs> and it was very interesting to get the reactions. Um, the freezer man. Um, I should probably back up on that. The um, store that I usually go to, to buy paper, to get um, whatever I walked into, it's right by the corner of the center. And I opened the freezer to get some milk out. And there was a guy in the freezer, which is you know, already a little funny when you're getting milk and, <laughs> and somebody's putting milk on the, on the thing. But anyway, this guy in the freezer, um, <laughs> I started laughing a little bit, and so he looked up, and then he pointed at me and he said, I know you. <laughs> what a great picture. <laughs> so there was that reaction. And then I got the opposite reaction. Someone came up to me and said, 
were you really, 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 really tired when that picture was taken? <laughs> and I, I said, well, maybe I was a little tired, but I, I don't know about really, really tired. <laughs> so it was the whole thing. There's just this picture and praise and blame and many other examples that I won't go into. My parents were just kind of puzzled by the whole thing. <laughs> Eyes closed. Mm. So it's living less in likes than in dislikes, living less in our regrets, in our plans, in our preferences, in our ideas, living less in judgment. Observing the urge we have to control our environment, to control whatever it is that happens to us, living less in controlling. An example of this is the breath. We've been practicing a lot being with the breathing. And the suggestion has been to surrender to the breath and just let the breath be the way it is. As we learn to do this, as we learn to surrender more and more and to just let the breath be, we may notice that there is less control in our lives in general. And we learn, even if there is a great deal of control in the breath, we learn how to not worry about control. We, need to, we learn how to not tense up when we notice that there is control. And we see the same thing in our lives, that perhaps there is a bit more openness, a bit less, less defensiveness or urge to control. And we can relate with openness. There's a great power in the heart at rest. We learn how to let imperfections be, to see more and more as simply no big deal. Concentration is the next of these factors. And concentration, there's the image of a candle with no wind, a candle that's lit and the flame is, is abiding, and there's no wind, and so it's completely still. It's a steadying, unwavering kind of attention. It's sustaining of attention. It's when the mind is sustaining its attention on whatever we want it to be with, it collects, it harmonizes, it unifies the various energies in the heart. And it disentangles the mind from complexity. It strengthens the mind and it adds depth, great depth to our seeing. It allows us to penetrate, it allows us to go underneath the surface of how things seem to be. And it allows for a gentle subsiding of the addiction to describing of the addiction to rehearsing life. The basis of concentration, the ground underneath concentration is integrity, which means attending to how various actions in speech cause aftershocks or ripples in some way or form, and how other actions in speech harmonize and bring peace into our lives. One of the obstacles to concentration is tension. One of the obstacles is simply worrying about not being concentrated. So simply seeing that tension, aware of the tension, can help to sustain the mind a lot more easily. If we can see it as simply an obstacle, not something that's real or something we have to get involved in, we can more easily sustain the attention. And the last of these factors is equanimity, 
which is an even-mindedness. It means being close to all of our experience. Tara Tolku, a, a wonderful Tibetan master, has spoken about equanimity being equally near to everything. So it means a sense of fullness. It doesn't at all mean indifference. It's an unshakable balance, a radiant calm within the heart. <coughs> On one end of equanimity, the opposite of equanimity, is anxiety and restlessness. And then very close to equanimity, something that can get confused with it, is indifference or dullness, a feeling of being quite withdrawn. Equanimity doesn't happen around any kind of emotional emptiness. It has to do with a fullness of understanding of how things are, of how things are operating. It has nothing to do with suppression. It can't be pretended to fit any kind of ideal of how we should be reacting, of how we should be. What it means is a true security in the heart. One can rest within the heart. There's a strength and there's a courage to be present without withdrawing into resentment, guilt, self-pity, a feeling of being powerless. It also has to do with being able to dwell with another's pain, being there without doing. (coughs) Uh, Some months ago, I had to have some painful work done on my teeth. And I was with a new dentist. And this dentist knew, was aware that he was causing me some pain. And he was so even-minded with it. It was such a help. There was nothing he could do with it. Do, he could do about it because it was necessary pain. But simply by his presence, simply by noticing the pain and being willing to be with me in it, it was such an enormous help. There was nothing he was saying or doing or uh, nothing he was not doing. He was simply there. So these factors within, these energies within each one of our hearts, not in one person's and and not in another's, but in each one of our hearts, part of what it is to be a human being, none of these need to be accumulated. None of these need to be gotten from anywhere because they are inside. And it's simply a matter of allowing the seeds to grow of tending, of watering, of caring for, of attending to the seeds. And they do need this kind of nurturing. They absolutely do need this kind of nurturing. This kind of discovery, for most of us, takes quite a conscious effort. And the kind of structure and form on this retreat really encourage the flowering of the seeds Retreats are a way to step outside of the normal context of our active engaging in life, the ways that we have to respond to life or react to life. It gives us a little bit of a simpler situation, brings us into a space of receptivity. So we can use these factors to guide our practice. Each one of us can look at these different factors and use them to guide our practice. It's stepping back and looking in an honest way at what is already strong, what needs nurturing, what is most difficult. 
without a sense of being trippy about it or evaluating obsessively, just simply using it as a bit of a guide, knowing that they are all inside and looking for them, being careful to nurture and take care of them so that they will grow. For all of us, whether we've just begun sitting or whether we've been sitting for years and years, for all of us, it's a continual unfolding. And the direction is only towards peace. The direction is only towards freedom. The direction is only away from despair. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in calm. May all beings live in freedom. So maybe we'll sit now for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.